Do you remember reading The Giver? Who wants to be the first tonight for feelings? Jonah's father asked at the conclusion of their evening meal. It was one of the rituals, the evening telling of feelings. I was very conscious of wanting to seduce the reader of The Giver into finding this a comfortable, safe community in which to live. That's Lois Lowry, author of The Giver, 1994's Newbery Award winner. My father was a career military officer. So the community in which Jonas lives is not unlike a military base in its structure, organization. All the housing was alike. All the high-ranking officers lived usually in a row uh, in, in nice houses that were all alike, and then people lower rank lived in less nice houses. Everything was very clear. The structure was clear. And the rules were clear, and it was very safe and very comfortable. I've been reading and recommending books for Book Riot for many, many years. Karina Yan Glazer is the author of six books, five in the beloved series, The Vanderbeekers, and her newest book, A Duet for Home, which comes out in April of this year. And one of the books that was sent to me was On the Horizon by Lois Lowry. It's just a collection of poems that she wrote about her experiences of World War II and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And she grew up in Hawaii and there's this video footage of her playing on the beach and in the background there's the USS Arizona, which was the ship that was destroyed during the Pearl Harbor bombing. And this collection of poetry and memories that she has was so incredibly touching to me and it encouraged me to go back and sort of look at her other books. And I picked up The Giver and just loved it. And I think it touches so much about childhood and about growing up and about learning that adults don't always tell the truth, that adults can do things that are harmful. So I found it incredibly powerful to read as an adult. I remember from it distinctly the tone, this sort of calmness and evenness and sameness about everything. Anne Ursu is the author of 10 books, including Breadcrumbs, the Cronus Chronicle series, and The Real Boy. Her most recent book is The Troubled Girls of Dragomir Academy. Even when people are trying to describe something that feels emotional to them, it's just so, so steady. But underneath that calmness, or as Jonas might say, the sameness, looms a sense of foreboding. Something is changing for Jonas. He sees a change in an apple, in his friend Fiona's hair. All this as he is anticipating his Ceremony of Twelve, where the Committee of Elders will decide his career. Jonas has not been signed, she informed the crowd, and his heart sank. Then she went on, Jonas has been selected. He blinked. What did that mean? He felt a collective questioning stir from the audience. They too were puzzled. In a firm, commanding voice, she announced, Jonas has been selected to be our next receiver of memory. We have had our current receiver for a very long time, she went on. 
Jonas followed her eyes and saw that she was looking at one of the elders. The committee of elders was sitting together in a group, and the chief elders' eyes were now on one who sat in the midst, but seemed oddly separate from them. It was a man Jonas had never noticed before, a bearded man with pale eyes. He was watching Jonas intently. The man is the current receiver, and as he hands over his historical memories, memories of times before now, memories of war and pain, of hardship and strife and of difference, of joys and pleasures lost, Jonas becomes the receiver of memory. The old receiver needs a new name and he tells Jonas to call him the giver. Karina Jan Glazer. There is a moment where Jonas is receiving all the memories and he is given the memory of color and he is starting to see glimmers of color. Jonas has just received the memory of sledding, a thing he never experienced because his community doesn't have hills or snow. The giver has asked him to look closely at the sled. Dumbfounded, he stared at it. This time, it was not a fleeting impression. This time, the sled had and continued to have as he blinked and stared at it again. That same mysterious quality that the apple had so briefly. And Fiona's hair. The sled did not change. It simply was. Whatever the thing was. Jonas opened his eyes and was still on the bed. The giver was watching him curiously. Yes, Jonas said slowly. I saw it in the sled. I'm right then. The giver said, you're beginning to see the color red. It is at this point in the text that the reader learns that Jonas lives in a colorless world. It's an early clue that the safety of this community has required significant loss. I purposely inserted clues, hence. One of the first hints takes place at the ceremony of twelve. I bring each child to the stage and say a few words about that child's early years. And Jonas has a friend named Asher, and everybody laughs because Asher is kind of a funny kid. And they describe his childhood and how he misused words, mispronounced words, used the wrong word, and did it sometimes in amusing ways. And they described how again and again they had to get out the discipline wand and whip Asher because he had misused a word. And the audience laughs and cheers. And reading that, you're kind of struck by how strange and inappropriate that is. What it read to me like, what I remember is the part in Wrinkle in Time when Meg goes to Kamazots and everybody is the same and these kids are coming out and they're all bouncing the ball at the same time and it's it's absolute conformity and it's terrifying. And this book felt to me like Kamazots on a whole book scale. And I will add, incidentally, that I chose the word wand purposely. I could have used any kind of word to indicate a little weapon with which they could punish a child. But wand is a word associated with fairy tales and magic and usually a a nice thing, something pleasant. And I picture a Disney movie and little stars shoot out of the end of it and something wonderful happens. But shortly thereafter, his friend, the girl named Fiona, is doing her 
hours working with the elderly, a nice thing, a good thing. And it is revealed that there is a discipline wand used on the elderly as well, so that the reader will discover and, and understand only gradually that there's a, an underbelly to this very comfortable world. I'm thinking of the golden compass and all of these cold words they have to describe things that are so clinical and so divorced from the the horror of what everything really is. So the process of separating a kid's demon is indecision. And with the giver, it's release. It's a disciplined wand. Everything is just so peaceful and fine and we just accept it. And it's always been that way, back and back and back and back. And that's something so ingrained in their society. And so they just use these words and it just masks the horror. Midway through the book, the reader is very aware that there's something terribly wrong. There's a moment later in the book where something that he thought was more celebratory turned out a lot more malicious. To me, that really made me realize and think about how, you know, our young people are experiencing life. The same way the term discipline wand is a euphemism for something more nefarious, the word release hides a more sinister truth. Jonas knows that people get released when they get to a certain advanced age, or if they are criminals, if they are ill, or otherwise don't fit in. And Jonas knows that his father, who works at the nursery, will release the smaller child and a pair of newborn twins. It's a part of his father's role that he takes on without question. Jonas knows about release, but he doesn't know, until the giver shows him, what release really means. We want to flag that this bit of tape may be sensitive for younger listeners. To his surprise, his father began very carefully to direct the needle into the top of the new child's forehead, puncturing the place where the fragile skin pulsed. The newborn squirmed and wailed faintly. Why is he... The giver said sharply. You know, the release that he sees. That scene, the sort of... the. the darkness of it and the horror and Jonas's complete experience of watching and just being, oh, this is what's happening and it's fine. It's fine. It's interesting. It's fine. Oh my God. And the way that impacts you as a reader, that putting you exactly in that child's point of view and the turn realizing the horror of it is one of the more profound reading experiences of my life. Once you kill a baby on the page, it's pretty hard for the reader to take anything else away. And I, I of course, reread the book this week and was, you know, surprised by how many things I'd forgotten because what just stuck with me was, oh yeah, she kills a baby. Understanding what release actually means shifts Jonas's view of his community and galvanizes him to change it. Lois doesn't shy away from human suffering in her books. She says that the idea for The Giver, a story about the weight of human suffering and what to do about it, actually came from a painful personal moment she had with her aging father. My father lived to a great age, and I'm now approaching that age myself, of course. Bits of memory slip away, and you become aware that you've forgotten things that once seemed important. At any rate, I was visiting my father. He was in an assisted living place in Virginia. And it was during one of those visits then that I did what I often did with him, which was turn the pages of a photograph album 
and I came across a picture of two toddlers, two and five. I was the younger of the two. And my father smiled when he looked at that picture, and he said, there you are with your sister. And, and then he paused, and he looked a little embarrassed, and he said, I can't remember her name. And so I, of course, told him her name. Her name was Helen, Dad. She was named for her grandmother. And he said, yes, Helen. And, and we turned the pages again. There were the girls again, teenagers now. 13 and 16, I suppose. And he said, uh, oh, there you are with your sister. And he said, whatever happened to her? And uh, I had to tell him she died, Dad, because he had forgotten that. And of course, as any parent knows, and as I sadly know myself, the death of your child is, is the worst experience of your life. And yet he had forgotten it. I realized that would be my next book. Anne Ursu's book, The Troubled Girls of Dragomir Academy, shares some thematic elements with the giver. It tells the story of Maria Lupu, a spirited but overlooked sister to a brother who holds the promise of becoming a sorcerer. The story takes place in Illyria, a patriarchy rich with fantasy, where boys hold all the potential to battle the dread, an amorphous threat that lies in wait to take over villages. Through a series of goat-related mishaps, Maria ruins her brother's chances at becoming a sorcerer and is ordered by the king to be sent to Dragomir Academy, a school for troubled girls. This book started me dealing with six months of white-hot rage over the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and being unable to write anything until I had somehow figured out what I could say to young readers about those hearings, about what happened. And the stories that were spun of who gets power and who is believed and how we shape and misshape stories to to serve certain narratives, that was so profound in the hearings and something I wanted to deal with. So I knew that going in, there's a patriarchal structure that was doing harm somehow and that they had to be telling stories about themselves. In this way, the world of Illyria and the troubled girls of Dragomir Academy is similar to the community and the giver. We've got everyone buying completely into the stories that these societies are telling about themselves. And in the giver, that is that we've eliminated suffering, we've eliminated pain, we've come into really the best of all possible worlds. And in Illyria, it is we have to act this way to keep the monsters at bay, to keep the the dread at bay, the witches, the sorcerers are the greatest people. And if we don't honor them, then everything's going to fall apart and our country will be overrun. So I needed to give Maria some kind of tools for asking that question. We just accept the stories we're told, right? Of course they're true. We're told they're true. Why would we question them? So we kind of need somebody to tell us, wait, that might not actually be true. So for Maria, that's her mentor character. I put in this mentor character, Madame Bondu, and was like, okay, I guess her job is she's a weaver. And just wrote this scene sort of randomly where she's doing this tapestry for this rich count and it shows him fighting off all these monsters that he can't possibly have done. So she puts a little symbol at the bottom that says she doesn't believe the story. And that symbol is weaver code. I was doing some research into folk arts in Romania and discovered Romanian embroidery language, which is, again, sort of secret, sort of codes that the 
peasants in women in Romania put into their embroidery. And there was a whole language. I was like, well, that's interesting. So people are creating this art which perseveres because of its its beauty or because of the history that it tells. But there's this secret language underneath of codes in which these women are communicating these subversive messages. And what I was hoping would happen is over the course of the book that Mari and the other girls would realize that the stories they've been told about themselves and stories they feel about themselves are stories that are essentially trying to take away their power and that those stories have nothing to do with them and is everything about the people that are trying to keep them from discovering the truth. It becomes something that she can keep asking. So, all right, if I'm being told a story and it's wrong, who might be behind this? Who does it serve and what does that mean? Karina Yan Glazer's book, A Duet for Home, also follows two young people as they discover the truth and try to change their world. In this case, the world of contemporary New York City and the politics of housing for homeless families. When we meet the protagonist, June, her family has lost their home in Chinatown a few months after her father's sudden death. She stands in front of a homeless shelter called Huey House in the South Bronx with her little sister, Mabel, her shell-shocked mother, and her viola. So June really has a lot on her shoulders, taking care of her younger sister and also cleaning up their old place and trying to find out what's going on. She's just a sixth grader and the New York City shelter system is such a vast place. It's very bureaucratic and she has her viola with her and the security guard comes out and he says that she's not allowed to have her viola with her. And this is an instrument that's very precious to her. Her father had earn money over the course of years to buy it for her and she is not going to let it go. So that's how we first get introduced to June. I think what is so special about The Giver is that the themes in The Giver are themes that I think all middle grade books have of young people learning who they are, who they want to be, and how do they get there. The Giver is all about finding out who you are, what your power is, and how you want your life to look. And so in a duet for home, a policy by the Department of Homeless Services that required homeless shelter operators to move out families within three months, so 90 days. And this was a policy that was actually implemented Many years ago when I worked in a homeless shelter, we really did a lot to try to fight that policy because three months is not very long for a family who's experienced a lot of turmoil to get on their feet, make sure that the parent is in a stable job and to make sure the kids are stabilized. It was another layer of worry that kids would have to think about as you know, in addition to not having home, but also this extra stress of, will I have to be moved out quickly and where will I go and where will my mom work and where will I go to school? All of those questions I think are very stressful. When June gets to Huey House, she meets friends and longtime residents, Jeremiah and Tyrell. Tyrell will become a really important friend for her as she tries to understand the world of Huey House. Tyrell as a character, 
He is very charismatic. He's very smart. He likes to play pranks with his friend Jeremiah. They both lived there for three years. And when they see injustice, they don't hesitate to try to take things into their own hands and try to figure out the best way to take revenge on someone in sort of unusual ways. But Tyrell and June, they're very different. So when they first meet, it's because of a prank gone wrong. And Tyrell feels horrible about it. And he's trying to make it up to June. And they become friends. And one of the things that happens is because Tyrell has lived there for so long, he knows all the nooks and crannies of Huey House. He knows how to circumnavigate the rules a little bit. And then June, she is is a little bit more of a rule follower, but she also realizes that the only way for her to continue practicing her viola is to bend the rules a little bit and follow Tyrell's lead. So they become fast friends. One of the things that he really loves is going up to the top floor of Huey House every night at the same time because there's someone next door who practices the violin every night and he loves the sound that she makes. And pretty soon, June is breaking boundaries in order to practice her viola. One of the residents sort of commands her to go next door and do a lesson with the person next door who Tyrell has actually been listening to for many years. Her name is Dominica and she is not what Tyrell expects. She looks a lot more like him than he's ever seen any other classical musician look like. And I think it gives him another perspective into what he's able to do and what kind of dreams are open to him. And the two of them together are, first of all, very funny. But second of all, they are both very smart. And when they learn more about this new policy that's going to kick families out within 90 days, they are just trying to do whatever they can to stop this policy. And together, the two of them are very powerful and they realize that if the policy is going to change, no one can do it except for them. And I love that that they have that feeling that they can make change happen. Each of these books feature protagonists who figure out ways to see beyond the misinformation and erasure that confront them every day. And then when they can see the truth, they challenge it and change their worlds. Some communities banned The Giver when it came out due to its discussion of euthanasia and to intimations of sexual feelings. And others challenged it. Here we are now, all these years later, after the book was published, experiencing what they had probably experienced in the distant past of The Giver. And often it's during Banned Books Week. I can always tell when it's come because the letters start coming in from kids. And one of the things they're curious about is the fact that in the book, The Giver, there are no books. And they want to know what happened to the books. And I explained to them that many generations before, parents probably would have said, you know, we don't have war anymore. 
And it's painful for our kids to read about war. Let's remove all the books about war. And so a lot of books would disappear, including some books for children. It's ironic that The Giver, which was published in 1993, quite a number of years ago, is suddenly now seems so relevant because of this movement, which we are recently observing, of parents wanting to eliminate discomfort from their kids' education and wanting to remove books that might make their kids uncomfortable. And in doing so, are hoping to remove pieces of our history. You know, as a parent, you try to protect your children in every way possible, but the world is messy and the world is dangerous. And of course, we want our children to have all these wonderful experiences, but we can't always hide them from hard experiences, which I think all of us have seen with the pandemic. And so reading it as a parent gave me this feeling that these hard experiences, they can't be shielded from kids. It was really startling rereading The Giver this week and looking at the parallels of what is happening right now with both books and history. The idea that we're not allowed to talk about Racism. We're not allowed to talk about any of the sins of this country with the idea that it might cause children pain, which of course isn't what anyone actually cares about. The idea is all about preserving a vision of America and preserving whiteness. And you see that in The Giver to the extreme where it is about preserving the sort of utopia that isn't a utopia at all, where individuality is gone, where there is no love, (laughs) there is no caring. What we are doing by taking away stories and taking away history and taking away memory is taking away empathy and taking away caring and the profound effects culturally of removing empathy, removing understanding what that does and what that's doing to our society. And The Giver makes that really, really clear. In Dragomir, what I really wanted to talk about was power and the way power rewrites history to serve power itself. And that's what's happening right now in America. We're taking away books and we're taking away history in order to preserve white supremacy. And in Dragomir, it is the patriarchy. They are erasing the real history, erasing the sins of the sorcerers, blaming witches in order to preserve a patriarchy. There was incidentally recently a place in Texas, a suburb of Dallas, where the school superintendent put out a directive that no books could be in the classroom or the library unless They were matched with a book presenting the opposite point of view. And one teacher, bless her heart, brought up Number the Stars. Number the Stars is another of Lois's books, also a Newbery Award winner, about a Jewish family that escapes Copenhagen during World War II. It has also found itself on a few banned book lists recently. She said, I teach Number the Stars. How can there be an opposing point of view to this? It became such a cause celeb and something of a scandal that the school board there rescinded that order. But the fact that someone might think there is an opposing view to the evils of slavery or of the Holocaust, my mind can't even go there. It's difficult. I try to remember that 
It's parents with good intentions. They want to protect their children, as I wanted to protect my children from anything bad ever happening to them. The problem is that they're inadvertently protecting their children from growing up and from acquiring knowledge, which is the task of children when they reach that age, middle school age, say fifth, sixth, seventh grade, those are the ages at which children learn how to become adults. And they do so by acquiring knowledge of all sorts. And if they're deprived from that, they can't continue to mature. One of her most impactful reading experiences growing up was her mother reading aloud to her The Yearling by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. It was a book that was filled with loss and, and pain and tragedy. And I cried into my pillow every night and I never forgot that book. And I could not after that go back to reading Mary Poppins because suddenly I had been invited into a world of deep, frequently uncomfortable, but meaningful feelings. And every child, I think, needs to undergo that at some point, needs to be able to read. And not only fiction, as I was exposed to with The Yearling, but kids now are going to need to learn about the hard things in our history in order to move on. And they're going to be the ones who determine the future and they can't be deprived of that knowledge. I asked Lois if she had any advice for authors who might newly find themselves on banned book lists. I frequently, when called upon, will write letters to the local newspapers. But I also have observed that the letters that have the most impact and that are the most eloquent, and the speeches to the school board too, are the ones from the kids. And there are always kids out there who are not just willing, but eager to stand up and fight against censorship. And, and they are just so wonderfully eloquent speaking from their point of view. I guess I hope that the kids who are fighting back against them and they're doing such a wonderful job can ask, okay, so who, if we're not talking about enslavement, who does that serve? If we're taking away books by queer writers and writers of color, who does that serve? Lois reiterates that it's the job of literature to discomfit children, to unnerve them, to provoke them to deep thought and feeling and to reveal the dark truths of the world in which these children will become adults. It's a reminder of what literature can provide for them because when they're younger and before they have experienced these hard, difficult, frightening things, which they will inevitably experience, they have sat in the comfort of a classroom or a library or in their living room at home or in their bed and they have read about such things when they're in a safe place, when they have people who love them, adults to whom they can talk and with whom they can address those fears. And that's a very healthy thing for them to do. It's a, it's a part of their growing up. A father wrote me once. He was concerned about something that his child had been exposed to in this book. And I wrote him at some length about the same thing, about how it was great that his child was experiencing that with a nearby father who cared about him, with whom he could discuss these things. It does seem to be an important part of growing up, 
that exposure to literature that is a kind of rehearsal for real life. And Lord knows real life is hard these days, and, and we need that kind of rehearsal in a safe place. Humanity is rife with injustice, heartache, and suffering. If only banning books could cure what ails us. Children's literature offers a rehearsal for the real world, a safe place for young readers to practice seeing beyond the easy narratives that are handed to them by their communities or that they might see in the media or even that they are taught in schools. It's the foundation for critical thinking. And seeing beyond can be scary. As Jonas learns in The Giver, it can be painful. But children come to books already having a deep and wide emotional landscape that they will use to navigate the world we leave them. So in lieu of fixing the whole world, which the giver shows us might not be the solution that we think it is, books can at least pull back the curtain on how things work around here and give kids a head start on making their corner of the world a little brighter. Tell us what you think on Twitter, at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your review could end up in our next newsletter, along with quotes, trivia, and updates about new episodes, which you can sign up for by visiting rememberreading.com. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins. Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Vishali Nayak, Lauren Levite, Shannon Cox, and Katie Dutton. Thank you to our editors, Ann Ryder and Jordan Brown, and special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Nicole Wills. Thanks for listening.